Welcome, everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum, July 5th, year 2007, and this is the ninth session of the Database and Ontology mini-series. We have the pleasure of having as our invited speaker, Mr. Chris Partridge from the Borough Center in the United Kingdom. Um, we will be introducing uh, Chris a little later, but before we do that, uh, let's go down the list and have everyone just briefly introduce themselves. Oh, by the way, my name is Peter Yim. I'm one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum. So let's go ahead. Uh, Bill? Uh, Bill McCarthy. I'm a professor of accounting and information systems at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan in the USA. Welcome, Bill. David? Yes, David Hay. I'm a data modeling consultant in Houston, Texas. Uh, Kingsley? Uh, Kingsley Idaran, founder and CEO of uh, OpenLink Software. Thank you, Kingsley. Uh, Frank? Yes, uh, Frank Alvitrus. I'm a, a consultant and I'm a certified enterprise architect with Java Professionals right now. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Ken Butzlowski. I'm a professor of computer science at the College of Computer and Information Science, Northeastern University. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Lisa? Hi, I'm Lisa Colvin. I'm an ontologist working in knowledge management group at Genentech. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Evan? Uh, hello, uh, this is Evan Wallace uh, from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, and um, I'm interested in the application of semantic technologies to manufacturing applications. Okay. Uh, Adrian. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Adrian Walker. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of a little company called Reengineering. And um, please uh, click on my name on the uh, Ontolog page to see more about what we do. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Adrian. And I heard a couple, uh, three people joined us uh, while we were going through okay. everybody's introduction. Oh. Uh, you announce yourself, please. Yeah, this is John Soa. Uh, I'm working with this company called VivoMind, and I'll be giving a talk next week. Welcome, John. Uh, who else is online? Hi, Peter. This is David Harris. Um, I'm a software developer with a lot of interest in that. Okay, welcome, David. Anyone else? No, if not, then uh, I will start muting everyone and get the session going. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, Chris, uh, could you speak up? Let's just so that we can make sure uh, we can all hear you. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, perfect. Okay. All right. Uh, let, okay, let me take the opportunity to now uh, very briefly introduce uh, Mr. Partridge. Uh, Matthew West, who uh, championed this mini-series and who's a good friend of Chris, uh, was supposed to do this, except that uh, a few minutes before this conference call, I got a long-distance call from Dr. West saying that he's stuck in traffic. And so I will sort of pr uh, give a very brief introduction at this point. 
Chris Partridge is the chief ontologist at the Borough Center. I asked uh, Matthew, how could I introduce Chris? And Matthew says, he is a pioneer in the practical application of four-dimensionalism in ontology, and this person has a lot of practical knowledge. So that's essentially why we have Mr. Partridge here with us today. We want to share his experience and to understand why it is so important that we take a look at this topic, data and process revisited, ontology driving a paradigm shift in the development of business application systems. So without further ado, uh, Chris, all yours. Okay. Thank, thanks, Peter. That's an excellent in, introduction, and I think the, the the point you made about the practical application is is, is um, really leads on directly to the talk because that that is my main interest. Um, I've picked, um, if, if you like, a very small topic within the overall um, area because it's such a big area, and to cover it all would be nigh on impossible. But also because I think it can illustrate a, a key point, and that's what I'm going to try and do today. And, and I hope I'm successful. Um, if we move on to slide two, um, one of the things that I would like to um, uh, uh, just, just, if you like, issue as a caveat is that. My interest is different, I think, from, from a number of people working in on, ontology or in the ontological community at the moment. My area of interest is in large operational business systems, uh, and I've, I've, I've put some examples here. Uh, and it's not in semantic web applications, it's not in linguistics, and it's not in inference. And I think that, if you like, the practical concerns relating to that have shaped uh, shape my interest, and I think they'll be different from some of the, the people here today, but maybe similar to others. So, for instance, um, David and Bill, and, I, and I, I, I realize they work in similar areas. And I think, to my mind, this is where um, there's a lot of untapped potential in terms of the application of, of ontology and ontological techniques. Um, if we move on to the next slide now, um, which is uh, slide three, which says thesis, um, I'd like to just quickly uh, explain how that relates to the abstract that, that, that I put forward. I think that, that the two points that I would like at least some of the audience to go away with is that we need to think about the way we develop business applications in a different way. And ontology is both the mechanism for understanding what that change is and also um, a mechanism for um, uh, applying a, this new way of working in the new world. And also, that fortuitously, that um, it's uh, turned up at a time when it's needed, when the problems that are facing um, uh, a lot of business application system development are to do with brownfield systems, to do with legacy systems. And if I can at least um, persuade some, some people of the value of those two insights, then I think I'll have been successful today. Um, so the, the, I tried to, I'm trying to craft here the way the argument works. I think the first thing that, that I think is quite important to um, uh, uh, agree on is that there's a common interest in what exists, uh, which I'm going to equate, with onto equate to ontology in both philosophy and business systems. Um, I'm also going to say that the way the business system works at the moment is even though that it, in principle it accepts this thesis, is that the, um, 
the way in which it's applied this thesis is not adequate for the development of, of modern large complex systems. It was probably perfectly adequate at the time that the paradigm came in, but it isn't adequate now. And I'm going to use um, ontology um, uh, as a way of, of, if you like, showing up with the faults in uh, faults in this the development process and to a proposal for revising the paradigm, and then try and explain how this revised paradigm. Uh, uh, helps us to deal with uh, the redevelopment or even the understanding of, of legacy systems. Um, so the first, first thing I want to do is, is uh, establish this, this common interest. And I think it, it, it's easy to do it in terms of the context of a, of a history of ontology. So we move on, which is move on to slide four. And then if you move on to slide five, if you, re if you search the web for a, a history of ontology, you get the etymology. I think the interesting thing here is that, is that the word comes from um, the ancient Greek um, to do with uh, uh, of being, and I think this is one case where the etymology, um, if you like, uh, relates to to the topic. If you then move on to slide six, um, the, the, I think the another two points are that ontology is old. Uh, that's something that comes off on, on every search. It goes uh, most famously back to Aristotle, and he had the first structured system of ontology in the form of an ontology of substances. Um, I think in the 20th century, uh, the, um, if you like, the, um, the, the philosopher's view of it has moved on. I, I quite like Quine's um, characterization. He says the ontology can be stated in, or the, the, the question ontology asked can be stated in three words, what, in, what is there, and the answer in one, everything. And I think that in some ways the, the notion is, as Quine intimates, quite simple, but he does say there is room for disagreement over cases. And I think there are problems in terms of how you apply it. And I think in order to resolve those problems, it's helpful to have a more technical definition. And the one that, that I've picked here, and I think that's consonant with a, a lot of work in modern philosophy, is that ontology is a set of things whose existence is acknowledged by a particular theory or system of thought. Um, now I move on to slide seven. I just I included the, the tree of porphyry just so that people could see sort of if you like the structure that, um, uh, that ancient ontologies used to have. Um, the trick here is to how is how do you um, integrate the two communities, the philosophy community and the business systems community? And I think that um, it's relatively easy. There is a, a notion that, that comes from now is that that um, systems can be regarded as theories of their business domains. And if you do that, you can then um, just make a slight change to Lowe's um, definition and, and say that um, um, an information system or business system ontology is a set of things whose existence is acknowledged by a particular business system. And a common way of characterizing an acknowledgement is, is a notion of ontic commitment. And this comes from, this comes from Quine. And I think that, that understanding this acknowledgement relationship is... Um, tricky and problematic, and if you tie it down, I think you get something that works, but it is something that needs to be tied down. Um, if we move on, one of the things, one of the implications of, of following in, in the footsteps of the philosophers, rather, if you, than the modern computer sciences, the ontology turns out to be the things that exist in the world rather than the model of it. And essentially what um, page nine is, is intending to do is to just give you some sort of background to do that. I think as it says at the bottom, there is a loose way of speaking when the ontological model is called an ontology. 
And I think that, that as, a, as a practice, that's perfectly fine as long as one's uh, reasonably clear, particularly if one's using, in, in the business systems world, if particularly one's using the word ontology to be the, the objects that exist in the real world rather than the, the model that you're using to describe them. So just, just to um, uh, clarify, if you like, uh, the situation in terms of business systems, almost from the start when people started looking at business systems, people realized there was this issue of um, what shape is reality and how we describe it, and it was important. The, the, the earliest quote I've came, come across is Mealy here, and it's, it's quite, it's in terms of the thesis that I'm trying to put forward, the quote is quite nice. It says the issue is ontology or the question of what exists. And then an, another important early work is um, um, Bill Kent's Data and Reality, where he looks at, looks at this. And I think there were a number of attempts to codify and standardize it in the early 80s. And I think the um, anti-spark is, um, is one of the areas in this the, the, the particular reference here. I think it's a reference that's often quoted as an illustration of, of the, the standardization that was done. Um, if we go on just quickly for the next two slides, we go on to slide 11. Um, uh, Mealy, when he looks at it, actually differentiates quite clearly between the real world of itself and the symbols on papers and symbol on paper and so forth. So there is quite a strong distinction here between, if you like, what exists in the real world and the way it's, way it's defined. Um, and also, just, just in a sense, to, to note a connection, Mealy actually refers to Quine's essay on what there is, which is where I got that earlier quote from Quine on what, um, what ontology is. Um, Bill Kent's making the same point, but he's making, uh, he's stressing the difficulty of trying to work out. If you want to try and describe the real world, how do you do it? It's, it's not saying that it's not that, not that easy. Um, so, hopefully, at this stage, it's, it's reasonably clear that there seems to be some, um, if you like, similarity between, uh, if you like, the, the subject matter of, of what business systems and, and philosophers are doing, is not necessarily the, the way in which they go about it. Um, if we move on to slide um, 13, what I want to try and do now is try and tie down um, the or some of the characteristics of this, the, the, the business system paradigm as it is now, and um, try to establish some of the, the issue it raises and start to make my case for the changes that are required. Um, if we move on to slide 14, I think it's useful to... I find it useful, at least, to understand this in, in Kuhnian terms, is that um, there's a, a question that's raised, um, which is what I think the Kuhns would call extraordinary science, a question's raised and discussed, and then people fix on an answer, and then that becomes part of the community's unspoken assumptions. It's no longer considered a, a suitable or fruitful topic for analysis until the question gets raised again. And in essence, I suppose that's what I'm trying to do, to move from this period of um, normal science that we've been having for some time, if, if um, business, business systems can be considered science, and, and try and go into a stage where we start questioning it. Um, what I'd like to use, if you like, as evidence for what the paradigm, I paradigm is, is the is the um, anti-spark reference I made earlier. Um, uh, and then I want to try and motivate a challenge, challenge to this. Um, so if we move on to slide 15 here. And this is, um, this is a picture taken from, taken from the reference. I think it's been um, uh, tidied up slightly. I'm not sure someone else did this for me. Now, if we can just identify what's going on here. You notice there's um, clearly a universe of discourse. So there's an idea there's a set of, of objects that exist out in the real world. 
and there's a, something that's called the universe of discourse description, and the relationship between the two seems to be one of reference. In other words, for each item uh, out in the real world, each John Doe that exists in the real world, there is a, um, a description in, within the universe of discourse description which says John Doe. And that the information system is composed of two parts. One is um, um, this universe of discourse description, and the other is the information processor. And the job of the information processor is to manipulate the, the descriptions. And in addition, you have an environment that the, where the information system works in, where people um, issue commands to the information processor about what it's meant to do, and they receive data back. And I think that... Um, just to, if you look at the picture, it's quite clear there's no direct semantic connection between the universe of discourse and the information processor. So you can say that the, um, the distinction between the information processor and the universe of discourse description is, on one level, semantic. In other words, the universe of discourse description is describing the universe of discourse with the information processor and it's manipulating it. Um, if you then uh, move on to the next slide, slide 16, this is another uh, common picture here. And even though there's a recognition that there needs to be two views over the, um, the, the data, so there's the conceptual schema and, and uh, information based and physical database, the conceptual schema here is regarded as, as something that is a representation of the um, uh, universe of discourse, the ontology, and it's something that's directly implemented in the system of storage. I mean, there's some translation in terms of physical database, but it's something that's directly implemented, and that the information processor, again here, is something that processes the data. It's not something that um, deals with the um, uh, universe of discourse at all. Um, what intrigues, intrigued me when I started looking into, into doing some research into this, if you move on to slide 17, is if you start reading the textbooks about the development process, they reflect um, this uh, uh, perception that there's a direct relationship between the universe of discourse and the universe of, of um, discourse description. And um, I remember reading one textbook and it says that um, you build your model, you describe your picture of the universe of discourse, and then at some stage you say, oh, I've, I've, I've had enough now, I'm going to use exactly the same model as my logical data model and start, start describing the process, processes that go over it. So essentially what happens is, is you have a, a single model and at one stage of the process you're saying I'm treating this as a description of the, the universe of discourse and um, when you've reached the reach, when you think that's stable, you then say, "Ah, oh, now I'm going to treat it differently. I'm going to give it a different interpretation, and it's now going to be a, in effect a description and a specification of the um, uh, the data that needs to be stored in in the database." Um, if we now move on to slide um, 18, is that um, and I've what I've I've used here, I, I use quite a lot, is the OMG's NDA um, perspective in terms of dividing up the stages that are in the development process. I mean, there's nothing particularly novel about the stages. It's just that it's something that's easy to refer to. Um, and um, the, uh, if you, if in terms of the way the stages work, it's that they suggest that um, there's a, you start off in something that you could call the computation agnostic zone. You're just do, describing, the, um, describing the domain that you're working in, um, obviously, you can have three or four applications with the same domain, so this is uh, something that's independent of um, either the application or the um, um, particular way that uh, the system is going to work. You then move into um, something that's uh, which you could call as the technology agnostic zone, and you're not 
you're not particularly concerned about which technology you're going to do it, but you define the system, and that's done in the logical model. In the final stage, the PSM, um, you define the actual physical model, the way it's going to be to be um, built. And you can see that the distinction between logical model and physical model is similar to the one in AntiSpark, where you had the conceptual schema and the physical data model. And what's intriguing is that if you look at it, the first mapping is assumed to be trivial. The mapping from this picture of the this picture of the universe of, of discourse, which has a a one-to-one picture, one-to-one one description per each item in the universe of discourse, the set of things that the um, um, that the system acknowledge existing, and that the mapping from the uh, logical model to the physical model is is non-trivial. This is much studied. There's lots of documentation and papers about how you how you do the translation. And and this this if you accept the picture. Uh, the pitch that came out of um, anti-spark and so forth. This is a, a sensible, a sensible way to proceed. Now, if we move to slide 19. Is that um, that the thing that I'm going to challenge is this assumption that the mapping from the universe of, of discourse to the universe of discourse description is trivial, as, as the two are isomorphic. And I'm, part of the way I'm going to do it is through by making an argument that. Uh, uh, arises from a corollary from this is that the universe of, of discourse and the uh, information processor, the processor, are completely segregated. If you remember earlier when I looked at it, I said the information process it has is not semantic in the sense that it doesn't refer to the um, universe of discourse, where the universe of discourse description does, and that's the distinction. I mean, it's not clear to me from the, the, um, the, the stuff that I've read quite in what sense that they're trying to claim that these are segregated, whether it's analytic, descriptive, or normative, but there is this clear sense that they are, they are different, and I'm going to try and mount a challenge to that. So if you move on to slide, um, slide 20, you, you, we could do it in, in, in fact, in some ways, given the way I work, I prefer to do this in terms of um, um, specific data in a specific system, because in, in a sense it's more empirical, you're dealing with something that's real. But I, I, think, it's, it's, it, I think that it's easy enough to make the case using a, um, a standard philosophical technique of a thought experiment. So what I'm going to try and do is construct a thought experiment which will show that it doesn't work. So I'm going to look at the ontic commitment of, of, of two legacy systems with the same um, universe of, of discourse. So if you've got the same universe of discourse, you should have the same ontology. So you'd expect them to therefore have the same universe of discourse description and um, maybe different information processes if they're doing something different. Um, and uh, what I'm trying to show, and this is, this is really where we come to the reason for the title of the talk, is that actually the um, universe of um, uh, discourses, the ontology, can be implemented as is implemented in data in one system and process in another. So the translation, the translation isn't clear. Um, so if we now move on to um, slide 21, the, the um, uh, example is trivial. You have in your system you have two credit transactions of ten pounds, and they go go up to make a balance of, of twenty pounds. Now, if I, in a sense, take the uh, try and look at the ontological commitment of, of the description that I've given here, um, uh, roughly speaking, we could say it's, it seems to us as though these things exist. Um, two amounts of £10, two movements of £10, a bank account, and a balance of, of £20. Um, and really what we're going to focus on here is the ontic on commitment to the balance, and so the, the relationship between the movement and the balance. 
And in the next diagram, which I hope um, isn't, isn't too small, um, you see two pictures. And the, 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 the intention behind this is to show that in one picture was meant to be a specification for one system, the balance is implemented as a process, and in the second picture, it's implemented as data. Uh, but they, they've got the same um, universe of, of discourse, so they're, they're about the same thing. So according to the, the original theory that, of which um, anti-Sparks subscribes to, they should in fact have the same, the same conceptual schema and the, the same, the same, essentially the same data in place. So if the system on, on the left is implementing um, uh, the balance of the process, and in the data you store the two amounts, you store the two movements, and um, the program at a particular time is called up and is asked to calculate the balance, and it calculates the balance and tells you the, the amount is £20. Um, the system on the right has done something different. It actually, um, when, it, when, the two, when it's told about the two movements, it stores, it calculates what it's at, and stores as a balance the, um, uh, the 20, I can't, I can't see clearly here, the $20, I was going to say £20, the $20. So we, have, we have quite clearly have two systems here that have exactly the same um, universe of discourse, but quite different um, content in terms of what's stored as data. So it seems to me that this is a, a clear indication that the, the thesis that if you if you mark out your universe of discourse, you mark out the objects that are in it. When you look at your um, at your at your data uh, at the uh, probably at the level of a logical data model, is that um, you should see all of the items that are in the universe of discourse. It's quite clearly the case that this isn't true with the system on the left. Um, if we move on to slide uh, 23 now. Um, uh, when we left the earlier paradigm, we're looking at the earlier paradigm, we noted again and again that the, that the paradigm that the business system community works in at the moment, and one of the things that surprised me when I started doing the research was how consistent this was, certainly in the, um, um, uh, the, the uh, books that support um, um, uh, the university courses where they teach this, and actually also in the methodologies where they practice it. And one of the things that has, has, has seemed to happen is that because the current paradigm insists that the translation between the universe of discourse and the universe of discourse description is trivial, what people produce when they produce a universe of discourse description is a description of the system and not a description of the universe of discourse. And in a sense, for the, in order for the process to work, that's what you must do. And that's grown up as a standard in terms of, of the way in which people work. And one of the problems I certainly find when discussing individual systems with people is to try and um, get them to think of building a description, an ontology that describes the objects in the world rather than the way in which they're going to be stored as data in the, in the database. Now, if we then try and say that, if we then assume that I've made my case and suggest that this um, mapping from the universe of discourse description into um, the uh, logical system uh, logical system model, um, uh, then you, you realize that if you're going to go through a development process, it should be possible, and I'll argue it's a good idea to do so, to start with the, the universe of discourse, do a proper universe of um, uh, discourse description and ontology, and then work out how to map this. And this mapping needs to go, can go onto both the data and the process. So the, the data process distinction that, you, that you're working with is actually some, is a decision that you make when you build a system and is not a decision that's inherent in the, in the, the universe of discourse. 
and um, there's a need to, if you like, work out the principles in, what, in which you need to do it. And also there's a need to work out the principles in which, the, uh, in which you make the mapping from one to the other, what constitutes a good or a bad mapping, um, depending on the requirements. Um, so we move on to slide 24. I think I've probably covered um, some of these points in, when I was discussing the last slide. So I, th I think that it, it's certainly to the people who are used to the current practices, this, this building um, an on, um, an on, a model of the ontology, a model of the universe of, of discourse, and then creating a series of mappings to a, a, a logical system model is something that they find as a, as a radical change. It, 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 they find it a very, very different, different way of working. And also this, this um, um, uh, actually having to realize that the making um, uh, the data process distinction is actually making a, a decision about how you design your systems is also, it, for them, is, a, is, a, is an unusual way of thinking about it. Um, and I, I'd also suggest that if you then think about it in this way, the, on, the ontological model has a clear role. And one of the things that was good, if you like, about the old paradigm, it was its insistence that there was a clear link between the universe of discourse and the, the data, so the, the universe of discourse description. And that, that is certainly true and it's a good point. The problem was is that as a result of them assuming that there was this trivial translation, um, the, uh, that people ended up building not a description of the universe of discourse, but a description of the, uh, the system's data structure. So we now move on to slide um, 25. Um, one of the things that I think is, is just worth mentioning and isn't really part of, of, of the, um, the arguments that I, want, that I wish to make today, but I think the situation is slightly more complicated in the way in which I've just represented it. And this is, I think, there are epistemological, epistemological concerns. And I think there are, if you like, ways in which we can reuse work that's been done in philosophy, both in ontology and to some extent in, in epistemology, in order to, to understand um, what, the, um, uh, what the development process is. And it, it, it's certainly the way I envisage the, um, the existing de uh, development process, process going on. It wasn't so much that um, uh, people weren't interested in the universe of discourse. It was merely that given the constraints placed on them, placed on them by the paradigm for building their systems, is when they built the, um, their logical system models and their, their models of data and process, they were implicitly and intuitively trying to reflect quite a complex relation with the universe of discourse and, and doing it in their, their heads. Um, and what um, we've got an opportunity now is, from an engineering perspective, is to make, make it much clearer, if you like, what's going on in the engineering decisions that are being made. Um, so we move on to slide 26. This is a, a picture that I, uh, I often use for the process, and it seems to me that there is a, a series of stages that one needs to go through. Um, uh, there's a stage, the first stage, um, I call them business domain models in case the number of people in the business systems community, um, certainly going back five years, were allergic to the, um, the O word, ontology, but more than comfortable with business domain, well, business domain models. And so this is actually a model of the business domain or a universe of, of discourse description in the sense that it's a description of the universe of discourse, not in the sense that it's a... Um, a um, a model of the logical data structures in the systems. 
you then need to, and that's um, the, the important thing to note here of trying to get a feeling for the difference between ontology and epistemology, is that's purely a description of the, of the universe of discourse. Um, in order to make an application specific, you need to consider some of the epistemological factors that are going on. And that's, in a sense, what links the, the ontology to, to um, the logical system. Uh, it's not that there are other factors going on as well, but the epistemic decisions are meant to reflect what the application system needs to know. Um, then the uh, logical model is a model of, of the system, and the mapping, the, uh, mapping between... The mapping between, at least in terms of the way I do the work, between the business domain model and the service model is the service model is a layer on top of the business domain model. But the mapping from the two, the business domain model and the service model together to the logical model, is a mapping where you're making a number of engineering decisions, including the decision about what's going to be um, uh, data and what's going to be processed. And then when you've made that decision about how you want to do the computation, you consider the characteristics of the particular technology you're going to use and refine the model. And I think that mapping from the um, logical model to the physical model is something that's reasonably well understood and reasonably well worked with at, at the moment. So if we now move on to um, the next slide, is that um, what I'd like to do is now talk about um, uh, legacy system ontologies. Uh, and just just um, a little bit of personal history, and um, for those who've read my book, I think there's a description of this in the preface, is that my, um, well, my interest in ontology started a lot earlier, but my interest in practical application came as a result of a series of projects that I was involved in trying to replace legacy systems, and we were faced with significant problems here. And, and that's when I became aware of, aware of the issue, and also I then started to realize the role that ontology could play in them. Um, so if we move on to slide, um, uh, slide 28 here, I think most of this is familiar to anyone who's had anything to do with legacy systems, but I'd just like to go through it to, um, if you like, set the scene for um, um, the various claims that I'm going to make later. Um, what seems to have been happening is there's a certain amount of um, business process that can be automated, can in principle be automated. Uh, uh, there are some... Uh, aspects of it that seem to be a little difficult to automate, though some, maybe some AI teams are working on, on stretching the boundaries of automation. Uh, and what's happened over time is that more and more of these um, um, things have been automated. And as they, they, people talk about the islands of automation, and what's happened is as they've expanded, the various islands come very close, and um, uh, the uh, islands grow bigger and bigger, you get bigger systems, and then also the uh, interaction between the systems becomes um, uh, a matter of automation. And the final pitch here is meant to say you have a, you tend to end up, and I think in every large corporation you go to, you end up with a, a number of large systems, some of them astonishingly old, you know, pre-1980, sometimes pre-1970, and a, an enormous number of links going in and out between the various systems. And that's a common picture in terms of the landscape of, of, of large corporations today. Um, the other thing is, um, and there, there, is, there is some data out here. I do some, I do research work with some colleagues at Brunel University, and um, they've, they've got figures from various reports, Gartner and so forth. I personally am not convinced of the um, uh, the accuracy of the figures, which are to two or three decimal places. But I think it's undeniable that, that there has been a shift from uh, greenfield to brownfield development, and it, it, it's something that's obviously the case. Um, uh, if you look at the projects going on, people are, there are more projects going on at the moment to replace systems rather than to build a new system 
for an area that isn't currently automated. And there's a significant amount of investment going on in um, maintaining existing systems, particularly these old legacy systems, and also um, uh, uh, trying to sort out the um, various links that need to be made between the systems so they can interoperate, whether this interoperation is internal or external. So if we now move on to slide um, 30, um, one, there is a paper, and I can, if someone wants it, they can either email me or, or um, well, that's the best way they can email me, but um, one of the PhD students at Brunel uh, did that, that I was involved, and we did some work trying to find out what legacy re-engineering approaches they were. And it seems to be that most of the commercial organizations, the consultancy organizations that we looked at, the way in which they dealt with legacy systems was through wrapping. In other words, they found some way of putting a new technology wrapper around the existing systems. There were very few systems, very few, well, in fact, I'm not sure that we actually found any that actually had, um, were, were offering a, um, a methodology or an approach to taking the um, existing legacy system and um, working out a way of redeveloping it. There were some papers, uh, I think, that we found for um, uh, uh, which described some methodologies, but there didn't seem to be much uptake. And they, even the people describing the methodologies, I, I don't think, attempted to describe them as mature. Um, from a, if you're a large corporation stuck in the system, you've got a problem in the sense that you don't seem to have a clear... Um, strategy for going forward. In a sense, you're stuck with systems that are, are 20 or 30 years old. There's a significant investment in them, and there doesn't seem to be a, a clear way, f way forward or one that, that is not, um, not um, risk-free. I certainly know one large corporation that I've been involved with where um, being asked to, they've attempted to um, uh, redevelop their legacy system, I think, five or six times, and, and being made manager of um, the next uh, redevelopment project is regarded as the black spot is you know is one step away from being um, being sacked um, if we look at at what the legacy system is this is some this is meant to be some sort of uh, i'll give you a feeling for for what it is it's, they tend to be big and they cover a range of the business they're often old i'm i'm surprised that some you know how old some of them are then going back to the early 70s and the 80s and they, they are enormously functionally rich, uh, given, um, uh, I think, the, the amount of investment in That isn't surprising. Um, I worked for a, um, um, a bank in Switzerland, and in fact, Hank, and they were looking at um, comparing the functionality of their existing um, system with some of the packages on the market. And one of the areas they, they used as a comparison was the way in which it handled um, corporate actions in, in South Korea, and the old system had sort of 150 different ways of dealing with the various different um, things that tended to happen in South Korea and um, not many other places in the world. And when they were looking at the package systems that replace it, they, m most of them barely covered 20 or 30% of, of that kind of functionality. So that gives you some idea of the difference in functionality between the two. And again, that's to be understood because of the enormous disparity in the investment between the two. You know, a system that um, from the banking, internal banking system that, that started off, let's say, in the uh, mid-70s to now has had um, decades and decades of investment, and, and the packages just, just haven't had the same level of investment. The problem is, is that they, they, they seem to be, these things show their age, and as a result of, of years of changes, they're inflexible, and as a result of trying to um, um, maintain them, um, um, 
the um, they've created more and more um, inflexibility in the structure, and so that makes it more difficult to add functionality. In a sense, the, the cost constraint on that means that they haven't got this extra fun- functionality. And one of the things that, in terms of the uh, the way people think about architectures, is they don't really see these systems from a technology point of being as a suitable, a suitable basis for long-term future development. It's not the systems that they'd like to have in place in 10 or 15 years' time, but the problem they've got is they can't see any way out. Um, the, if you think about, and this is, this is, this is something that I'm, it's not necessarily easy to see, easy to see, but if you think about the, the old paradigm, which in a sense forces one to start with um, a description of the system, then if you're going to redevelop the new system, you want to build a picture of um, the new, you want to build a, effectively a logical system model and you want to use the existing physical system model to try and uh, help you work out what that looks like despite the new system is going to be on the new technology. And essentially the, the mappings that you need to get there are quite difficult because in a sense when you're trying to work out the way in which um, the data in the um, old system is going to map on the new system, you're, you're faced with a situation where you're implicitly trying to work out what it maps into in the real world and then working it back onto your um, system model for your, your new, te- new technology. Um, and one of the, the, one of the, if you like, outcomes of, of this is people see it as too difficult or not feasible to build, when they're rebuilding a new system, to, to salvage um, a lot of their investment in, in the old system. A, 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 sta- a classic or a standard approach is to say, if we're going to build a new system, we start with a clean sheet of paper. And in a sense, what that means is, is that the enormous investment that's been made in the, the legacy system is, um, is uh, there's no way of salvaging it. So if we move on to slide um, 33, if one accepts this new picture where you have a... Um, uh, you start off with your ontology, your business domain model, your, if you like, the picture of the universe, uh, picture of the universe of discourse. Um, then this suggests a different approach because the the mapping from the ma- when you've got your um, your legacy system, essentially, if you, when you're trying to build your um, your ontology, what you're doing is you're actually doing a, a reverse of the um, the new proposed system. So you're working your way back up the physical data model to the logical data model through the ontology through the epistemology. And you've got a clear, clear way of doing it because you actually know what your universe of discourse is. You can say, okay, here's my universe of discourse. Um, here's the data. How do they map on? And then you draw a picture of the um, uh, universe of discourse. So there's a much clearer and easier way of um, uh, building the model. And also you recapture the element of the investment that you want because if you think about it, if you're moving... If you, if you divide your investment, um, if you like, under the headings of the stages of development, ontology, epistemology, logical system model, physical system model, certainly the physical decisions that are made are often on these old technologies are unlikely to be the ones that you want to keep. And often, quite often, the way in which these old system works in terms of the system design decisions aren't, you want, aren't ones you want to keep. So your investment in the, the logical system model and your physical um, uh, system model aren't, uh, aren't isn't the investment that you're trying to save. What you're trying to invest, uh, trying to salvage is the investment in the understanding of the business that's inherent in this. And starting with the ontology and uh, gives you a way of uh, discriminating between 
the elements in the existing system that you want to save and the elements that you don't want to save. So we move on to slide um, 34. Um, how am I doing for time, Peter? Have I got um, a reasonable amount more? or? Yes, I will take your time. Uh, oh, okay, good. Because the, oh, the, I, I left, left these slides in um, in case I case I had time. And this is really, as we come to this stage now, this is really a, a reflection on um, uh, my experiences in the last, um, um, I'm trying to think how long, uh, 20 or so years when I've been working on trying to do this, is that if you think about these large systems, there's a, a significant amount of data involved. And I think you, you people... Um, uh, who um, were listening in on my recent um, interchange, email interchange on the um, the ONTAC uh, uh, mailing list with um, Pat will we'll recognise some of this. It's very important to have a, have a framework to, in which to in which to be able to fit the information in. In other words, if your if your your top level framework for organising your ontology isn't strict and clear when you're trying to manage the enormous amount of data that's in these, these legacy systems, I think you have a, a, a very difficult task ahead of you. And I also think that given that you're trying to arrange the uh, content that's inherent in these legacy systems on the basis of the, the structure of the universe of of, of discourse and a structure of the business domain, a structure of the real world, as I think a number of people in the business system can call it. One of the things you need to be clear on is a clear decision in terms of the number of, of metaphysical choices. So if I move on to 35, and um, this is this is um, um, uh, I'm not don't want to. Well, I mean, I suppose if, if people particularly want to, we can go into it. I don't want to enter into an argument about who's got the best top ontology. This this. Um, uh, top ontology. This picture here is taken from is taken from my book. It's it's based on ontology that that um, um, uh, I found useful when doing these things, um, but it refines over time. And um, I think, for instance, for example, um, um, I don't know whether Matthew's managed to join us. Matthew's ISO 1596 um, uh, shares a similar pedigree um, um, in terms of, of of where this comes from. And so this is some this is if you like something as clear as this is quite important when um, dealing, dealing with the top ontology. And I think if you look at um, um, some of the other work that's being done, I think because it comes from a different direction, it goes a different way. So it seems to me stuff like Dolce and even stuff like, um, I don't know whether um, Barry or any of his adherents are here, things like BFO, I don't think they've um, you like taken the risk of... Uh, if you like, starting at the top level and being clear about what all the categories of things that can exist are. And I think there are, if you like, there are, because um, uh, probably technical, philosophical and logical issues if you start at the, at the high level when you start going down this route. But if you do want to, if you do want to organize your universe of, of discourse in a, in a sensible way so that you can manage these large quantities of data, it is very important to get you get this clear, and the issue that you have with a large operational system is that because of the interlinking between the systems, you, you, you can't, unless you decide to create a subsystem, you have to take everything that's in the system because almost everything in the system is um, necessary in, in order to um, get it to operate. So we move on to uh, slide 36. Um, one, of the, one of the things that 
I think I find quite useful that comes out of it is there's a tradition in, the, in analytic philosophy which follows this, which is extensionist, where you're quite clear about what the, the criterion of identity are for these kinds of things. And I do some work for the military, and they have this notion which they call deconfliction, which I think applies to their sensors when they're trying to um, sense objects and they're trying to work out what they are. In terms of the analysis, I think being quite clear on your criterion identity makes it quite easy to um, establish what you're talking about. And, and there is quite a lot of analysis, I think, is down to the fact that you don't have any basis of, of being clear about what it is you're talking about. So I think, again, one of the features to think about when you're dealing with this large amount of data is the criterion of identity. And I think this is an engineering issue. And, um, again, if I could refer back to the email discussion I had with Pat, I think he's quite correct to say that you shouldn't ask philosophers what, which is the right decision to make in terms of which bits of philosophy you're taking about, because it's essentially an engineering decision about what you're trying to do. And it's your, it, the criterion is, is what, what's the goal um, in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And I think my, my feeling would be is that that will push you to a certain, certain decisions. So if we now move to um, slide 37. Um, I think this is, a, this is based on a list that I brought up um, in the early discussions of... Um, the SUO or SUMO, trying to say these are the kind of things that I find people need to make decisions on um, when they're doing modelling. And I think that um, if I had the time and I was hard-pressed enough, I could provide you examples of different ways people have actually modelled this in systems or where, ways in which um, normal engineers, when they're trying to model systems, and information engineers have worried about any of these particular points here and come up with particular answers. And I think historically, the problem I see, looking backwards, is a classic, um, is a classic problem that any, any, every textbook on um, uh, metaphysics has at the beginning. If you're not clear about the existence of these metaphysical choices and the implications of them, then typically your descriptions will be heterogeneous. In other words, at one stage you'll make one decision, at another stage you'll make another. And if you think you're trying to um, organize large quantities of data, if you organize one bit on one basis and one bit on another basis, it's, when you try and put them together, it's quite difficult. And if you've got a number of choices, the permutations are quite high. So it's quite useful when you're trying to organize the data to have, make a quite clear decision on it. And I would, I would say that it's actually more important to make a decision than what decision you've made. Um, but though, though I would again argue that for saying that some decisions make life a lot easier when you're trying to um, do the kind of task that I'm involved in. Um, just in case anyone's interested, these are, these are the particular choices that, that I've made on, on these. And um, again, if I have the time and press, I'm, I'm, I'll be prepared to try and defend um, some of the choices. But I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I have an open mind. If someone can show me there's a better way, going, better way of dealing with them that I'd be, um, we can prove from an engineering point of view the work we're doing, I'd be really pleased to um, adopt that um, um, improvement. Um, just a point to note, which you'll find in any of these, these textbooks, is that the, um, the choices tend not to be, um, I'm sorry, I'm not doing slide numbers, I'm on slide number 39 now, these choices are not independent, so one of the things is you need to make sure, it's not you need to make the choices, but you need to make them consistently. If I just go back to slide 38, um, for instance, it's uh, quite common for, for people who perjurantist to adopt some, some form of ex extensionism. Um, going back to 39 now, 
Um, as I said, you need to again, you need to keep on bearing in mind the the, the engineering that you're trying to do, and and, and get that to drive your choices in terms of how you um, structure your your high level frameworks. And I think, for instance, I, I've done. Um, I was with um, in um, um, 1999. Um, in the year 2000, I was with uh, Nicola in his ontology lab, and it seems to me that if, you, if you're worried about different, if you're worried about a different goal, for instance, um, uh, trying to um, uh, create an ontology for text, and your interest is in linguistics, I think you would go down a different route. And I, I would, I think it would be, I think it's, I would think it's fair to say that you can see the effect of a more, a, a bigger interest in linguistics in um, uh, an ontology such as uh, Nicola's, we, uh, and that would explain the differences between that and one such as the ones I'm used to and the one that, um, that Matthew, for instance, works on his ISO 15096. Um, and then if we go to the last slide, um, I'll just try and, 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 and make a, a summary here. I'd like to think that, that the first point here, that there's common interest in what exists, isn't so contentious, and, and hopefully I've persuaded it, some of you. Um, I'd be lucky if I persuaded all of you. The thing I think that is more contentious, and it's quite difficult because I think for people, because as Kuhn points out, that um, becoming a community it, it involves accepting the community's assumptions, which are its paradigms, and that um, an important part of the or initiation ceremony in the community is learning how to um, ignore any awkward facts that undermine the paradigm. So when you ask, when you try and challenge a paradigm, you're actually um, undermining habits that um, uh, that they've uh, acquired in order to become a member of the community. So you're actually challenging things at a number of different levels. So I mean, if I've done some work to try and um, explain that to, to, to some of you, I'm, I'm pleased. Hopefully, whether or not you accept it, you could see that if the claim I'm making is right, it does make some changes. Uh, it would suggest some changes to the development process. Um, that's going on. And finally, I hope you can see the way in which these changes to the development process actually favour a new approach, new approach to the redevelopment of legacy systems. Um, okay. I, Peter, I hope I haven't been too long. Um, and that, that's it for me. So if there are any questions, uh, please feel well, free to ask it. Or you're going to moderate the questions, Peter. That's yeah. wonderful. We actually have Matthew with us now, and I will pass the baton back to him. Uh, you have to speak up, uh, Matthew, slightly soft. Yes, I'm, I've actually managed to uh, get back on the line here. So my, my abject apologies to everyone for missing the beginning. Um, the only benefit I have is that I have heard most of it before. So um, Anyway, are there any questions for Chris? Uh, let, let me repeat the process. Uh, if you have a question, uh, please press 1-1 one, one now so that we can see who is lined up uh, to ask questions. And then when uh, you got, get called upon, uh, please press a star 3 to unmute your line. Uh, I can see a hand, uh, four hands up. Uh, the first one is someone from the area code 508. Uh, if you unmute yourself and try to uh, announce yourself first. Hi, uh, this is Dave Reiner. I think I'm the person in 508. Do you hear me? Great. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, very interesting view of 
ontologies as a way to capture business knowledge at a high level. I'm wondering about other applications of ontologies to uh, these large-scale business systems, in particular if you're looking at uh, managing data centers, for example. Uh, it's been mentioned that ontologies are very helpful for recognizing high-level entities such as business processes or custom applications or other things that are have a little bit of a, a fluid definition. I wonder if you could comment on that aspect of ontologies. Um, okay. I think there is, there is some truth in it. However, and in fact, I have a project at the moment where we're actually discussing and dealing with this point, that the client has a problem that they believe that um, the business has no coherent view of the high-level processes, and he's, he wishes to focus on that as the first point on, on doing an ontology. But the, 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 something I didn't stress in, in, in terms of, of what's going on here is that one of the benefits of having a large system with enormous amount of data, if you can consume it, is that you've got an enormous, uh, enormous, um, what's the word, resource to check your 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 um, your um, uh, your models. And I think one of the things that intrigues me is that if I'm always start my projects asking for legacy data, and I'm treated. People always say yes, and they never give it to me. They just can't believe that anyone would want legacy data at the start of the process. For them, that's something that comes at the testing stage. And if you look through the methodologies, as far as I'm aware, there's not a lot of, apart from the odd example, there's not a suggestion that you should get high volumes of data in order to check your model. If you look outside it to, to science in general, and I, I, I'm not an engineer, so I imagine engineering as well, is that certainly in science, you, the, the larger the sample, and the more varied the sample, the more confident you are that your, your theory has been um, subjected to uh, a sufficiently um, stringent test. And the issue that, that I, that the reason I raise that here is that typically the high, is, is these high-level processes are woolly, and in some cases you want to build a woolly model, and that's fine. But if you want to precisify them and, and regiment them, you, t you tend to need to be able to build up your case from the bottom up so the processes are, are made of sub-processes that work in a certain way. So it's, I think there is a stage at which you can use the approach that I, I tend to work on in order to um, sort out um, your, your high-level processes, but I think you, I would suggest you do it from the bottom up, and in fact that's the discussion I'm going through with the client at the moment, to, to get a very clear idea what your low-level processes are. And one of, the things, one of the reasons why that happens is that I think there's a similar exercise happening in the business when you do, people who do business process modeling. They're modeling the process that, that's going on rather, particularly when, even when they're managing information, rather than the, what the information in the process and when you, do, when you start modeling what the information in the process refers to, you find you've got quite a different structure. And I think one of the surprising things, and it still surprises me, but surprises the people working on this, is where the, what, if you call it the universe of, uh, universe of discourse, the universe of discourse description, has a significantly different shape, certainly to existing, existing systems that you, that you have out there at the moment. You get a very different picture. So I think it has a role to play on these high-level processes, but certainly my experience is, is that it, the way in which you want to get at it, to get a sufficiently precise and accurate picture, 
if that's what you're after with these high-level processes, is to work it from the bottom up. So you need to look at the sub-processes and the sub-sub-processes. Thank you. Okay, um, who's next on the line, Peter? Yeah, we can see the person from 703 has already unmuted himself. Let's go with the person from 703, and then we take it from the top, uh, the person from 517, and then the person from 301, and the person from 914. Uh, so go ahead, uh, the person from 703. I hope that's me, Peter. Todd Schneider. Sorry, I got here late. Okay, uh, go ahead. Uh, question... I really like the end of your talk, the, which is the part I saw or listened to. I, I'm interested in the slide talking about your choices. And in particular, I don't, it's not clear to me how you would use the notion of materialism, however you're interpreting that, in the development of the ontology. And could you say something more about the modally unextended individuals? I don't understand oh, okay. that concept. <laughs> okay, I, materialism I'm happy with. Um, I, okay, I will, the uh, modally unextended in, individuals, I'll probably have to rack my brains to remember quite how that works. Okay, the, the thing about materialism is that certainly the way in which, the way in which a standard, if, if I was, if I was to come in and do an analysis, the way in which I start the process, and it seems to be the easiest way to start the process when you're, is, is you look at the data instances, and what you're looking for, of Aristotelian terms is, you, is you're looking for particulars rather than universals. And you say, okay, the universal exists, but give me an instance of, in, within the data, database, of an instance of this universal as a particular. And then, because I'm, I'm, um, um, uh, I'm a 4 Dist, I then say that my materialism is essentially saying that everything it has a spatio-temporal extent. Now, I probably would fudge it a little on, on, on numbers and the philosophy of mathematics, where I think that, if you like, it probably isn't quite worked out. But in general, the, the thing I say is you've got to tell me what its spatio-temporal extent is. And most people balk at it. But when you've done that, you've actually got a mechanism through, the, through this criterion of identity of sorting it out. And so, for example, I was talking to a number of people... I'm trying to think now, several months ago, and there was a big issue about them. They had built this thing of a high-level process where they've got a system. So I said, okay, give me an example of a system. And their example was a tank, you know, a tank and an army. And I said, okay, so can you give me, uh, from a 40 point of view, when, when you think this, this, this tank starts that you're talking about? And someone said, well, it's manufactured. Now someone said, no, 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 because actually we're doing this here is that we have to kit it out. So it only becomes relevant to us when it's a kitted out tank. And then I said, do you include the, um, and they said someone has to be inside it. So I said, when you're talking about this, are you including the person who's running the tank as part of the system, or is it something different? And there was a, and there, there was a lot of discussion about what they want to do. And I said, look, I can put both these things up, because within the four-dimensional extent, both things exist, and let's, but, and we can put them both in, but do you want to pick one? Now, there's two things going on there. One was that, I, in a sense, you've just, you could actually accommodate both sides in the argument and include it in your model. And what happens later on in the model, you find that either both are useful or only one is more useful. So you, you stop that. But you've also got, a, if you like, um, a way of, of, of de as I think I said earlier, deconflicting what's going on. So you're moving the modeling on in terms of creating the model, and you tr you're, you're eliminating um, a certain amount of common um, discussion about this is what we mean by it. There's no is that once you've got the terms, anyone, you know, you could, there's six people using the same term, they can mean six different things if you want to, as long as they can give you a spatio-temporal extent. 
Um, the issue about modally unextended individuals is that um, there is a problem with, in dealing with modality where in terms of um, um, uh, things that could have possibly happened but, but, um, uh, but didn't. And it's actually, it actually goes, it's in the heart of almost every system. And certainly in commercial systems, you have a notion of a contract. When you make a contract, it's perfectly possible that the contract will fail. And I've done a lot of work in the financial sector. It can actually fail in different ways. It can fail totally, so you have a failed trade, or you can have a late delivery or a partial delivery. So the contract will say you're meant to do something on a certain date, and you don't do it all, you do part of it. And the way you have to deal with this is you have to say, we promised this, and we actually delivered this. And modally unextended individuals is saying that what you do, the way in which you deal with it, is you deal with counterparts in, in other possible worlds. And so that's just a technique of dealing with modality. And the reason that you want to do, with it, do it is you want to preserve your materialism and your extensionism. So if you, if you pick um, modally unextended individuals in possible worlds, you can then still keep materialism and extensionism when you're trying to describe things like contracts or plans or other things that have a modal aspect. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, it, was that helpful, by the way? Or, or uh, Yes, parts of it. It actually brings up a problem I have with Dolce at some point. Um, one of the, the, the this example you gave of the tank yeah. Uh, yeah. as a system, and at some yeah. point it does not exist as a system, again, depending on the context that you're interested in, then becomes an mm -hmm. existing system. Um, you would then think, if you're going to present it that way, then it looks like uh, the tank, as that notion of tank, has perdurant qualities to it. Absolutely, yes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, depending again on your context, it looks like it should be an endurant. And uh, what, well, am I being I stupid think, here, or I don't am I confusing that, I, things? I, well, I, I, it seems to me that there, there are, certainly what you say is coherent. My, my point from an engineering point of view is, plumb for one of those, and then you have to live with the consequences, because the consequences of having both, unless you do it in a systematic way, which I think is what Barry Smith is trying to do, I don't mind, okay, you have a choice, you can plumb for one or the other, or you can plumb for both in a consistent way, but the issue, when you're dealing with large amounts of data, is the issue of being consistent is more important. I'll be more interested in why... Could you give? Could you explain a little bit more why you think you should go? First of all, I, don't, I think the notion of context is not something that's attractive or, or makes sense in terms of, of, of the kind of um, uh, perdurant um, extensionism that, that, that I'm involved in. Um, I think the context is to do with a linguistic feature rather than an ontological feature, and I, I can explain that if you want. But I'd be interested to know why you think that, that there's an endurant aspect to it. Uh, that just could be a misconception on my part. Um, uh, but when then, I mean, I, I, I've been wrong before, but then what you're suggesting is that any manufactured product should be considered as a perdurant or have some aspects yes. in that area? Okay. Yes. Uh, that's, I find that more consistent than considering it uh, as having any aspects of an endurant. Yes. I, uh, but, but please, I'm sure that there are... People who, if they had money, time, uh, uh, they definitely had the intelligence, could develop um, an endurantist ontology that, that, as long as they were consistent, that, that could manage these systems. I would just suggest there's a probably, I would argue there's a, an ease of use issue on the ontology and so cost implication. But if you've got shed loads of money and, it's, and the project's going to cost, let's say, 50 or 80 percent more, um, uh, but it's going to succeed, then, and you've got someone who insists it's um, 
um, injurantist. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to make an argument against them. So I mean, I'm not trying to to not dolce you for being injurantist. It just seems to me that from an engineering and a cost perspective, there are reasons for going. Thank you. I, I would support that view as well. By the way, this is Matthew West here. Um, from, from my experience of, of uh, trying to develop uh, data models and ontologies, um, that, that uh, the perdurantist perspective gives you a, um, a Matthew, you a, need to speak up. Sorry, a clean like a and rigorous approach um, that is uh, uh, that, that has the properties that Chris is talking about. I, I have a shared experience with Chris on this. Maybe I could just say in passing is that, is that um, there are these, um, if you like, um, soft ontology wars between people, you know, advocating different choices in different ways going about it. I have the greatest respect for um, Nicola's work on Dolce and Barry Smith's on, on BFA and John, John's work and so forth, so I'm slightly less familiar with it. I think that I'm not trying to disrespect them in any particular way. I'm merely trying to say that in terms of the, the, the area that I'm working in and my personal experience, is that these are the particular choices I've made and I've found they're successful. I'm not trying to make a particular claim about other ones necessarily not going to be successful, if you, if you get my drift. I think you've explained that fairly clearly. Okay. And, and very, very, um, very completely. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's all for me, Peter. Question, please. Yep. If, if the person from... Area code 517 can press a star 3 and unmute yourself, uh, then please go ahead. Hi, this, this is Bill McCarthy from Michigan State. Um, well, I was going to ask a question on the choices that you've made, Chris, mm -hmm. um, but I assume that referenced working paper there talks about why each one of those uh, was a choice that you made based on your analysis of uh, long-term analysis of business situations. So if I go there, I can get that, right? I think, is that probably I think true? you can get. I think the, the, basically the, the reason it's called a note is that one of the things that um, uh, happened in, in the early discussions of SUO is I was trying to raise this issue of metaphysical choices, and I think uh, to be honest, I, I find myself a little bit of a, a lone voice on on. Um, on, on, in, in terms of um, the full range of the metaphysical choices, and in order not to clog up the list, is I did a, I, I did a note, and I think I did a, some hints as to, 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 if you like, why you make the choice. I mean, I would suggest that there are a number of books. I'm just going to look around. There might be some here. I think I've mentioned this low, and I think it's pronounced Lux. I've never. Bill Anderson tell me L O U X are two excellent books on on. Um, uh, metaphysical choices, both of which I think on almost every one of the choices makes a different choice for me. Um, so, but they're excellent in explaining what the choices are. In terms of the practical uh, details of why you choose one or the other, I think my my main book um, would explain some of the choices that you have to make vis-a-vis -vis universal particulars and perjurantism and indurantism. And I okay. think if you go perjurantist, you, 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 you lose presentism. That goes with it. Some of the other stuff I would actually recommend, and, and, and I'm not sure whether John So would agree with me. I would re recommend David Lewis's um, um, uh, plurality of worlds. As, I think that's the title. I'm just trying to have any doubts about the yeah, title. So as another right. good place to, to try and find some material for, about making the choices. Okay. Well, then I, I actually, since that question was taken care of, I have a question on slide 26. If we can pop back there for one second. 
Um, and in your computation agnostic zone here, you, mm-hmm. you take the, what traditionally has been the development of a conceptual model for a database and break it down here into a business domain model and a business service model. And the, and the point of the whole presentation today was that people in legacy systems have a tendency to model the artifacts of the legacy system and therefore don't have the ability to sort of step back from the legacy artifact and look at the actual domain itself and try to get a clean uh, look at the components that are there. And that's what your business domain model, your business ontology in that second one is. I was sort of wondering, though, if one does that, and this obviously relates to my own problems with the accounting community, mm-hmm. um, is that you often get a, um, a, a quick reaction from the people who've developed these systems and the people who use these systems um, that your clean white page look at the business domain um, is ultimately going to um, be naive because you don't have the the full range of possible uses and services, which I guess the next box over sort of takes care of. Um, and then that sort of brings up the problem if you're developing these clean domain models. Um, how does one get acceptance um, abstracted from the legacy systems that happen to um, sort of be the 60s, 70s, and 80s attempts at those things. I'm not sure if you've had any experience with that or if that's not a fair question. Oh, no, question. no, no, no. I've, I've had experience. Um, but, but by the way, Bill, I should have said hi. I'm sorry. I, I just reacted straight to your question. It's good to hear you again. Um, Go ahead. The, the first thing is, is, can I just clarify something? I think your characterization of of my argument was was, was incorrect in one one point that, that, that I think is it was a very small point in terms of the it was a small point in terms of the description, but it's quite important. I'm not claiming that people are looking at legacy systems. I'm claiming that the whole community, when it starts looking at, um, uh, at building systems, ignores the the um, building the conceptual models. And that there is a a, um, uh, a methodology out there called the Rational Unified Process. And um, with my colleagues at Brunel, we spent a day, a day and a half trying to find any evidence of there that they were trying to build a conceptual scheme or the business model. And the closest they get to it is a business vocabulary. So if we go back to, if you go back to slide, um, uh, right at the beginning, if we go back to slide, um, oh, oh, here we go, to slide 15. Um, and if you, if you were to imagine a, uh, where we have the environment and the information system and the universe of discourse. If you were to take the universe of discourse off there, is that what they focus on almost all the time, what they, call, what they in fact call their business model, is the relationship between the environment and the information system. There, there seems to be next to no acceptance or thought about the universe of discourse. And I think that's becoming, in terms of the business practice that I'm exposed to, that's becoming um, more and more common. And I think that's the result of people saying not having a framework where you can have a uni- picture of the universe of discourse that is very different from the data structures you have in your system. And the methodologies, the tools don't support that. So they push into a situation where they just they start with a picture of the system and they don't start with a picture of the universe of discourse. Now, the, it's interesting that you should, you should say, um, and I can understand the problem you're talking about, which is this question about acceptance. And it is, a, it is an interesting route, and it's an interesting route how, in terms of how innovation works. And there's, there's a number of, 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 if you like, routes that I've gone through. I think that um, uh, 
as if you look at innovation, they say that is it something like 0.5% or 1.5% of people are innovators who can see a new idea and work with it. So part of it, what you need to do is work with an innovator. But I think, and this is where the legacy system uh, is interesting, is that there is another aspect of, of, of which I haven't um, talked about here at all, but you can see repeatedly in my papers, which is the notion of generalization, which is identifying general patterns under which um, you, you fit the, what goes on. And so one of the claims that I, I – there's two claims that I make about this, this generalization, and these are claims that are commonplace in science. I think for people who work in IT, they dismiss this, you know, as, as nonsense. But if you look in science, they, they are they – are, um, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a commonplace. It's, it's what's expected in science. And the idea is, is that if you take the physical model and you start doing your um, – um, building your ontology, what you do is you start finding um, patterns that reoccur, and that if you start generalizing these patterns in the right way, and there's an issue about precision and accuracy, you get very, very high-level patterns. And one of the things is that when you get to the right level, these patterns are very fruitful. And so one of the things people start seeing, and you can actually test it, because when you do your legacy system re-engineering, you start in one section of the model, then you move on to the next one, and you can show their fruitfulness, because what happens is these patterns you develop for one purpose in one section of the legacy um, system are actually uh, appropriately applicable to the other areas. And in, the, in my book at the back, they talk about this. So what, what you do is you can show people that there's um, a significant reduction in code, and um, I do a lot of work at the moment with um, uh, a company called 42 SBS or 42 Objects, and they've had all, each time they do a cycle, when they go through a cycle and they understand how to use the patterns, they get an order of magnitude reduction in the amount of code they use. Um, uh, obviously, that you can't do that too often, otherwise you end up with um, one line of code. But they get significant reductions in the line of code with correspondingly significant, significant increases in functionality. And I think that if you look, talk to people in the business about how they think about systems, they tend to think that there's a, the level of complexity is inherent, and there's a thing called function point analysis where you analyze the functionality of the systems. And that, is, that, that takes as an absolute basic assumption that if you're looking at a certain area, there is a certain level of complexity, and you've just got to describe it. What it doesn't understand or doesn't seem to realize is that actually the level of complexity is a function of the way in which you generalize things and the fruitfulness of that generalization. And if you think of any scientific revolution, Copernican, um, Newtonian, um, Einsteinian, everything, I mean, this is something that Kuhn points out, is that typically you get a general pattern that covers four previously disparate areas. The general pattern is actually simpler than the four areas that it's going to cover, and it's fruitful because it has unexpected results. And that's just, in the history of science, which is, Dealing with information in its own way, that's just a commonplace. And I think what we're trying to do is, is what I think is happening here is finding a way of, um, if you like, applying the empirical method to, um, to systems. And the other interesting thing is, is that if you actually look at the way we build people in the business systems community build systems, is they very rarely look at instance-level data until they actually set up the system, which is, if you like, um, anathema to the way in which empirical science works, which is built on looking at uh, bits of data and seeing how they work. And if you have large amounts of data, which you do have in these legacy systems, and you're able to validate your model against it and your general patterns, then you deal with, I think you made some issue about your models not being able to cater for all the variety here. I think that you get the opposite situations. I've actually had people moaning is that it's too functionally rich, we'll never want to do this, why are you putting it in, I'm not prepared to pay for the price for it. So you, you get a shift in perception about what you're doing. 
Bill, I'm not sure. Did I answer all your points? I think you yes, know. you did. I, I certainly agree with the generalized, the mood toward generalized patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is something there that I think you sort of skipped over, which is very, very hard, is you've got to some way, sometime, not convince the people who are buying your systems, but the domain literature of the new model that you're building, that in fact, um, and it's a much harder battle than selling a system. Selling a set uh, of no, 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 new ideas in the, uh, in the domain yep. is yep. really, um, at least in the present scientific community, a, a long, drawn-out in um, sniping. No, no, no. I, I, I agree. I agree. And okay. I, and I, Thank you very much. That, that, that's, you answered my question. Yeah. Okay. Can we have our next uh, questioner, please? Area 301. Uh, this is Evan Wallace from NIST, um, and you mentioned you characterized uh, the computational independent model mm-hmm. to to um, platform independent model mapping as trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience, it, it, which is pretty extensive at the OMG, uh, that's not considered trivial at all. It's quite the opposite. Um, I guess I w- I'm curious as to. Uh, what led you to that uh, conclusion? Okay, I, I, okay, I think you're slightly mis- misrepresenting my position. Um, okay. okay, I haven't looked at the OMG stuff for, for a year or two now, but certainly one of the things that when I was doing the research that I noticed in the OMG is that the definition of the computation, the, the Kim layer, was, was, was very skimpy. There was very little on it. And I think part of it, if you read the literature, it's not clear whether actually they're talking about a business domain model or a business service model or something else. I, I can't remember the exact definitions, but I remember going through it, and it seemed to me that people hadn't quite worked out. They were aware that there was a Kim, and they hadn't quite worked out what's going on. Now, it might well be the case that people are now saying, if we really do build the Kim, that the, the mapping is quite difficult. But I think if you go and look in the literature where, where, where students are taught, for instance, as, as a, my colleagues at Brunel, we went through the, the standard textbooks, is they say you start off with this business domain model and you build it this way and I mean I can I, can, I think it's Pressman was the, was the text that we looked at and they say directly you then go and have a, a model of data and that's what people thought and also my experience of looking at business domain models well my standard test is, is and I don't know whether you have any Kim models but is that and this is where the data and process distinction is quite useful is that my standard test was people put, put up um, a um, uh, a business domain model, and or a, a lo- uh, uh, something that they call a business domain model, and I say that um, uh, is this a you know is this a, is this a model of the system or the real world? And they say, oh yeah yeah, it's a model of the real world. And then when I look at it, I say, look, you've made distinctions here between um, things that are data and things that are a process. And they go yes. And I say, but isn't that a feature of the system, not the real world? And then when you start asking those questions, it becomes clear that they've imported into the system important to their model, ideas about how the system are going to be built. And I think the reason they do that is because of this paradigm that's inherent. So what I'm, I, my claim is is that I think the, I'm not sure that the business system community is brainwashed into a single heterogeneous state, but it is a generalization about the mainstream is that if you look at the way people building systems, building bus, their business um, domain models, they expect their business main models trivially to map onto the logical model. Now, within the OMG, if they've worked out that it hasn't, that's great. And I think that's, I think that's probably a sign that people are beginning to realize that it doesn't quite work, that the paradigm's not working. But for, for every example you show me from the OMG, I can, I'm sure, if I had the time, I could go through the, the, you know, the textbooks 
or um, if I could get permission from, from the various clients, I could show you examples where people produce things that they think they claim are business domain models, but are clearly models of the system, or, or severely infected with aspects of the system that they're going to build. And particularly the data process distinction. That's a, that's a really good test about whether or not people are genuinely making a business domain model independent of the system that's going to be implemented. Thank you. Okay. Uh, are there any other questions? I, I think oh. I've taken all the questions oh, wait. that um, we have hands up for. Um, Sorry, go on. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is John. So I was uh, area code 914. Ah. Yeah. So, uh, okay, I had um, actually uh, uh, two sor sort of separate things. One is uh, uh, very uh, uh, low-level kind of legacy system issues, and the other mm -hmm. is very theoretical uh, modality issues. And uh, I just wanted to mention, let me start with the uh, legacy systems things. Uh, there's all kinds of problems, and uh, I certainly agree with you that there's uh, uh, 40 years of uh, or more of uh, junk that has to be dealt with when you deal with these legacy systems. And one of my colleagues, Aaron Majumdar, had uh, been processing one, uh, such a thing where they had uh, 40 uh, software dating back to the 1960s and uh, 40 years of uh, various kinds of updates and changes. And it wasn't just that they had one application or system, but rather an entire framework of everything, that the whole corporation's uh, stuff had grown up and evolved around one another, and there's just an incredible number of different systems all interacting, and then all interacting with external things like the conventions of various kinds of governments around, uh, the, uh, around the world, uh, all having different tax laws and different constraints and different formats. And then, of course, you have uh, vendors and suppliers, and uh, nowadays you have things like uh, Amazon.com, which uh, uh, edicts that uh, uh, you're not going to be able to sell through them unless uh, your uh, interfaces uh, match up with their, uh, form, uh, with their schema. And then uh, it used to be that uh, uh, at one time there was a database administrator who would at least try to enforce some kind of central control over the uh, fields and formats and files and uh, structures. Uh, but then what has happened is that after everybody got a PC on their desk, they started using Excel spreadsheets, and then you ended up with uh, bottom-up evolutions of applications from everybody's uh, from a spreadsheet uh, conventions at different departments and different locations and different individuals, and then you have this nightmare of incompatible spreadsheets that have to somehow be interacting with one another and with the uh, database and all that. It, it, and uh, trying to, I agree that uh, ontologies are nice, but trying to uh, bring ontologies into that world or uh, alternatively extract ontologies from that world and um, relate them to one another and to uh, what you want to do for the future is um, an enormous problem. And do you have any comments on that? Yeah, yes, John. I mean, I, I recognize everything that you're saying. I, the, the, the work, my, my interest in commercial ontology, I think, and I described this in the preface of my book, is to a series of projects that we, we had. And I think what I've been trying to do over the last 20 years is trying to develop a systematic process for eating that. So at the moment, I have absolutely, my problem is more like um, Bill McCarthy's. Is my, 
I think it's actually not a problem at the moment because I have too much work, but is the issue is trying to persuade people that it's a good idea. The doing of it, for me, in terms of the bit that I'm focusing on, so let's say, let's take your description about Excel spreadsheets and everything else. I'm not trying to create a... My first goal is not trying to create an ontology that um, says that everyone in the organization has to think this way. My goal would be saying, pick a system that you know doesn't work, that you're going to replace, or that you want to interface in some way. Pick a system where you need to find out what's inside it. And some of these systems, I mean, I was quite, well, I've got to say, I'm not shocked anymore, but I still find it a bit difficult. Some of these systems, they've got no source code for it. Not only have they no documentation in terms of user documentation, they don't know what the source code is. I mean, it's, 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 they really have no idea at all. And the levels of layers they've got around it protect it because they have no idea what's inside. And you have people, that, people coming in with gray hair of 75 or 80 as consultants, and there's only two of them left, and um, you know that they're going to die in the next five years. It's a bit of morbid thought, but how are they going to support it? But, so I come in and I find one system, and I can say, look, I can, I, can, I, can take, I can get you into that system, I can tell you what its ontology is, and I can show you how to redevelop the system. Or I can show you how to design an interface with them. I can give you an ontology for that, and I can also show you how you, when you build your new system, it's going to be functionally rich and have less code. I can make that point. So I'm making a very small point within the organization meeting a well-understood need is that for these things they needed to be interfaced or they needed to be replaced. So I think I'm actually addressing a slightly different goal for you. I'm not saying this ontology is going to take over the mindset of the whole organization. I'm saying there are hotspots within the organization and we prove one of those hotspots. Now it might be that if you carry on doing this for five years or ten years that you end up with something different. But all I'm, all, this, all I'm thinking at the moment, the, the stage that we're at, in terms of maturity we're at, is just taking, within these large organizations, taking two or three hotspots and saying, this is what you do, this is how you deal with them. Okay. Well, that's um, another issue, and maybe we'll talk about that next week when I'm uh, presenting. But the other thing is the modality issue that um, I wanted to mention. And one yeah. of the things that uh, I've been advocating is the... Uh, semantics instead of a possible world semantics, a semantics of laws and facts. And uh, it's uh, logically equivalent. In fact, anything that you do in terms of possible worlds, you can map into laws and facts. And the idea is that each possible, with each possible world, you have a set of uh, things that are true in that world. Those are the facts. And then you have a subset of facts which are called laws. These are the immutable uh, or if not immutable, at least more uh, critical or more fundamental principles. And these can be things like database constraints, or they could be things like contracts. So, for example, a contract is a, uh, a law that has been stipulated, and a contract, as you observed, isn't just a single law. It has clauses, uh, some of which are more fundamental than others, so that there may be clauses which say this is what must be delivered, and then there are things that are negotiable, such as the dates and the deliverables and the ordering and so on. And uh, one of the things that um, uh, I've been advocating is using the uh, semantics of laws and facts. And I've talked about the uh, Dunn semantics where you, have, you map your possible worlds into these situations where you have, for each world or each uh, situation, you have a, uh, a set of laws and then the laws have an levels of entrenchment. In other words, that there are some that are absolutely immutable, such as the laws of logic. The next are the ones that uh, maybe God could change, but we can't, and those are the laws of physics. 
and then there are the ones that uh, are the laws of various states and um, uh, governments, and then we have the laws and rules and regulations of the business, and then we have the various contracts, and then we have the various policies, and uh, each of these establish as uh, levels of entrenchment, and so that when you say something is necessary, you mean necessary with respect to a particular set of laws. And this gives you a much more flexible framework for dealing with modality and also multiple modalities and multimodal reasoning. But then this also raises the question of what is called in, uh, in dealing with uh, reasoning things, and that is branching time. So that you don't mm-hmm. think of time as four, you don't think of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, space-time as four-dimensional. You think of, uh, time as being one-dimensional going back into the past but going out into uh, indefinite amount of branching into the future, and each branch represents a hypothetical uh, possibility, either something that's under your control under as an option that you can do, or it's something uh, by somebody else's control that you might have to respond to. And uh, the whole thing ends up being, uh, you can't talk about, uh, if, uh, you can't talk about four-dimensional things going into the future. You can talk about uh, the four-dimensional things into the past, but not in the future where you have hypotheticals, future designs, and uh, like, for example, a tank that hasn't yet been built or Boeing designing a 787 that has just uh, come off the uh, wire and maybe they're going to design their 797 next. And so they still talk about it as the 797, but there is no such thing in existence, and you can't really talk about an extensional uh, semantics for that because n- no instances of it exist, but uh, there is, uh, in terms of the possible world approach, there are situations or uh, possible contexts in which you do have a set of co- uh, facts and a set of laws about those facts that may exist at some point in the future. Now, uh, do you have any comments about how future okay. uh, hypotheticals fit into uh, the... John, there's just one small point. I mean, I think that you... you, you, you made a presentist assumption when you said that if it's something like the 797, because it's in the future, you can't assume it's got a four-dimensional extent. Well, I mean, what we're saying is that if in this world they actually do build it, and we're quite clear about what its extent is, and we know what the extent is over another possible world. So I don't think there's any problem here. But I think what, what, what the underlying issue is, is I, can, I understand all of the points that you're making, and I can understand why you're pushed in them, given where you're coming from. But the issue that I have is I need to start, when I'm doing my analysis, which I was, uh, had a meeting last Thursday, I'll have five or six um, people in the room, two or three will be subject matter experts, and I need to start to build up a case. And I need to, in terms of cost, in terms of bringing it forward, I need to have a way in which the analysis can go forward without um, spending too much time on something. And so what the, what the particular concoction of choices I've made, extensionism, um, 4D, and so forth, means, where we, we actually use this as a technique, is that you can then, um, if you like, minimize the amount of time, wasted time from a commercial point of view discussing different things because you've got this very strict road track to go down. And actually... Uh, I, I sometimes like thinking it, like in terms of actions at a distance. It seems to me that in science, the reason that actions at a distance was because they're trying to minimize the number of possible answers. They set that down as a rule. And the joke is, is that Newton's gravity, of course, was action at a distance, and he's embarrassed about it because it's a occult force.
but they're trying to establish something that said that if you follow this, it's an efficient way of getting, it out, getting at the answer. Now, in the context that I'm working at, it's very, the reason you go for a possible world semantics, and I can, I'm sure, I, can, I can give you a list of all the sorts of problems that, that there are with it, is that it enables you to keep this um, extensionism and the four-dimensionism, and therefore enables you to tie down to people what they talk. So it's a question of, in this particular context, that arriving within a group of people, at arriving at a, a consensus, you say, look, we're starting out with these rules, and I've done this quite often, do we accept these rules? And you start, they start having a discussion, they say, look, guys, we've agreed these rules, we've agreed this top ontology, we're doing it in this context. If we accept this context, what's answer? And it actually works very well at moving the conversation on and getting the model out. Now, I can understand the point that you make, and I was expecting you to make this, this point about these alternative semantics, and I think there is some argument to be, I'm sure there are arguments to be made for it, but in the engineering context that I'm involved in, it, that it doesn't make sense to, to um, maybe, it, maybe in a longer discussion you can persuade me it does, but at the moment it doesn't make sense, because it, it forces me to drop a number of the tools that I've got. For, and branching time being an example, when you have branching time, you've got a problem of, of, of you lose your criteria and identity, or you have to have a more sophisticated four-dimensional criteria of identity. So it's a question, I and mean, that's quite an example of the trade-off between the different choices. So I'm not trying to suggest that the choices that you made are wrong. They're plainly in the context you work in, you find them useful. But in the environment where I work in, where we have a legacy system data, and if you look, I think, in, in my book, in, in part six of my book, I explain this process. You have a systematic process where you go through item by item and work out what the um, work out um, what it is. In that kind of environment, in the kind of analysis I do, it's really useful. For oh, right. I, I'm not, no, I'm not saying that you should uh, abandon that. What I'm saying is that the uh, view of the, the basing it on the laws and facts includes the possible worlds as a special case because what you say is that uh, what you have, each possible world, in, instead of using, you, use, you can still use the label possible world, but instead of thinking of it as a world, you think of it as a database. And uh, there are these, that, uh, so that uh, the facts, the, con the contents of the database are your facts, and the constraints are the uh, laws. And so that you can still have an extensional sort of thing, but you have to then talk about the uh, possible ways in which uh, the uh, databases may, uh, the database updates may occur. And so what you end up with thinking is that every possible world is a database, is a, is a, is a certain state of the database, and uh, every possible world has a set of uh, constraints, and those constraints are the constraints that uh, can, be, uh, can be derived from contracts, they can be derived from governments, they can be derived from everything. So that in, every, in, a, in a sense that uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, accessibility relation for the Kripke style worlds, that is a constraint on what, what, de what database updates are permissible. And so effectively, the uh, idea of talking in terms of laws and facts gives you a more general approach in which you can treat possible worlds as a special case, and instead of thinking of them as real things, you think of them as uh, databases. Each possible world is a, is a possible way in which the database could evolve. And so, anyway, that, that gets you into a lot of different just, issues. Just, just, can I just, I, I can see what you're saying, but my problem is, and I actually had this problem um, last week, because I was talking to someone about a planning system, and yeah. I, he, was, he was saying to me, but this plan doesn't exist. Well, how can you talk about its four-dimensional to him, the possible world semantics? So, I understand why you're making your point, but on the ground, 
when I'm trying to say to someone when they're talking about a plane flying from A to B right. and um, on a mission and getting it being refueled and whatever, is right. that until I can say this, imagine that this, this other possible world in a Lewisian uh, way, I say this is real, what's its fundamental what's extent, the way does it work? And then when I do that, because I'm using a, a consistent analysis approach in the actual world as well as in the other possible world, I'm able to do my models. Now, yeah, that I, buys I, me what I, what I need. Now, I think your approach buys you what you need in your I, no, no, I, I'm saying that the, the general approach includes that, and all we're, talk, all we're arguing over here are labels. And uh, a lot of people use the term scenario. I'm happy with the term scenario. I'm happy with the term situation. You talk about, uh, you, can, you can use the word possible world. You can use the word, situa- word situation. You can use the word okay. scenario for an evolution of a sequence of situations. You can uh, use all of those terminology interchangeably. But what you have underneath is a theoretical structure. You recognize that possible worlds really map to uh, collections of facts. Uh, a possible world is really a collection of facts. And, uh, like something to investigate. Yeah, and uh, that gives you a framework in terms of which you can talk about all these things and interrelate them. Okay. I'm going to miss out. I'm not, I'm not convinced because I think that in order for analysis to work, I have to say all of these possibilities are real. I have to adopt a very, at least a starting point of the analysis, I have to adopt a uh, a very Lewisian approach to get my analysis going, and I think of course you can. Have, of course you can. You just say all these facts are, all of these states of the database are real. All of oh, these, okay. all of these situations are real. Call them, okay. I don't care whether you call them possible worlds or situations or okay. Fa- okay. Uh, sets of facts. They're all okay. and uh, calling them sets of facts actually is closer to what you're really do it dealing with because you're never uh, implementing a possible world. What you are implementing are collections of data which uh, represent the facts. Okay. Okay, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> okay, right, thank you for that. Um, I think that means we've come to the end of the questions. Is that right, Peter? Yes. Um, so it, it remains for me to uh, thank uh, Chris Partridge for uh, an excellent and uh, obviously very stimulating uh, talk on uh, uh, the way that he's using um, the paradigm shift in development of business uh, systems. Um, and uh, particularly this re-engineering approach that that, uh, he has developed. Um, And thank you all of those who are asking questions for having such a stimulating discussion afterwards. Uh, Finally, my personal thanks to Peter for uh, stepping in for me at the beginning of this session, and my apologies to everyone for my absence. And then thanks again to Peter for his organization of... uh, this session and uh, providing all the technical uh, uh, wherewithal to make it happen. Thank you very much, Peter. And thank you all for attending, and uh, good night. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Matthew.